0: Welcome to the Execution Zone podcast where we tackle the challenge of why executing strategy is so much harder than actually creating it. We talk openly and honestly with entrepreneurs and leaders who will share the behind the scenes story of their own journey. This will give you the insights that you need to shortcut your own path to success episode we speak to the amazing Jacinta McDonnell and we hear how Jacinta and her brother Justin took Anytime Fitness from zero to over 500 clubs in Australia and over 400 million in revenue. Her story is absolutely epic and Jacinta shares with us how they got the rights to Anytime Fitness in the first place, how they achieved rapid growth, what some of the keys to their success were, some of her key leadership lessons, some of her personal habits for high performance and So much more. This is an absolutely incredible interview and I can't wait to share it with you. Welcome to today's episode. Today we have got the amazing Jacinta. Uh, Jacinta is co-founder of Anytime Fitness and founder of Humankind Project. Before we get stuck in talking to Jacinta, I want to go through a brief bio Um, Jacinta, as I mentioned, co-founder of Anytime Fitness, along with her brother, Justin, and bought the U.S. franchise over to Australia in 2008. Since then, there is now over 500 clubs in Australia, half a million Aussie members and $400 million turnover, which is epic. Got so many questions about that. Um, In addition, Jacinta then opened a yoga studio, Will, in October 2017, and part of her mission to make yoga accessible to everyone, got lots of questions about that, and also booked my first yoga class after reading that. (laughs) Um, And then beyond that, Jacinta has also now moved her focus to her not-for-profit Humankind project that funds life-changing projects in Africa and India, and connects projects to businesses to build Brand equity whilst creating lasting social change. Also got lots of cha- uh, questions on that one. And then finally, is if that isn't enough, Jacinta does that with three kids, <laughs> which I've just been asking Jacinta about how on earth she does it as a relatively new mum. I needed some tips there. <laughs> Welcome, Thank Jacinta. Thank you so much for having me. Do you hear that bio and pinch yourself? Yeah, I,
1: just, it, I, I think I'm used to it, but it's, um, the number's still... Um... I still get amazed by the numbers in
0: terms yeah. of what's. But, you
1: know, it's 12 years now since we yeah. launched. So,
0: but yeah, they're, they're, um, they're big numbers. Yeah. 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 So I want to start with Anytime Fitness and start with the journey there because I've read about obviously how you, you came across the concept of Anytime Fitness in the US and then started approaching the US um, guys to try and, you know, pitch yourself to, to bring the rights over to Australia. Yeah. Can you fill us into the background of the story? How that came about, and sort of bring us up to speed?
1: Yeah. So in two thousand and seven, my brother and I were running two fitness centres in Sydney, in the city. Um, they were our own brand that we that we launched, and we saw the concept. And um, we'd both been in the industry since nineteen ninety two when I left school. So since I was eighteen, so we kind of really felt like we understood the industry mm. um, and knew how to run. Run gyms, And so this to us was like the next level of what was happening in the US and mm. the industry in Australia generally follows the industry in the US when it comes to fitness. So we saw the concept and just knew that this was what um, was going to be the next big thing in Australia, the 24-7 concept. And so as soon as we saw it, I just went to flight and we emailed the founders of at any time, and said, we just want to come over and have a talk to you about obviously what's happening here, and it's just to discuss any potential of bringing it into Australia. And we met them three weeks later. They weren't really ready to expand globally. They hadn't done any master franchise agreements, but they'd already been approached by a couple of people in Australia already. And so they're kind of like, yeah, we're interested, and we were like, okay, what, you know, what can we do? What are the next steps? And so we just kept going back to the U.S. every few months and doing more research on the brand and and catching up with them and meeting them. And so we were kind of progressing, I guess, progressing them Mm. through the process of, like, you should come to Australia. This is what we're doing. And so it took us 12 months in all from when we first met them to when we eventually got the rights. And um, the U.S. founder came out to meet with us and another group just before we were approved, I guess, as the, as the chosen um, few. And he was trying to give us two states and give this other guy these other states, and I was just like, "It's not, that's not what we want. Um, what do we have to do to get the whole country and New Zealand? And he was like, you just need more money. We had no money. Right. And we had a lot of passion and so much experience, but we just didn't have... I guess what they wanted to see in terms of the bank balance to be yep. able to launch. And so I just remember saying to you, we just just need three weeks. I just need three weeks and we'll resubmit the business plan with, you know, stronger financials and so we had then had to go find investment. Did you find outside investment? Uh, yeah, outside yeah. the people that we, that we knew. Right, okay. Um, so then we just went around to talk to a lot of people in the industry that were all, you know, trusted peers, friends, yeah. colleagues, pretty much anybody <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have, sit down and have a chat about it and all of them told us that they didn't think it would work that, you know, you guys are crazy, that's just in the US, no one's going to go to the gym. And these were people that we really admired as well. And luckily there was, you know, um, Richard, who who was a close friend at the time and still one of the investors and still one of the founders, was like, yeah, look, it seems like it might work, it seems like a good idea. And so uh, we managed to get some investment and go back to them to go, okay, we absolutely are ready. And I think they saw our passion and we got on really well with them. We had really, really similar values, really similar vision um secure the rights in may 2008
0: and launch from there wow yeah and you just mentioned about some of the experts and people you respected and held yeah. in really high regard yeah. saying terrible idea it's going to work in the states but not in australia not going to work here yeah. how do you still have the courage and the conviction to go forward and go no no i think it's a great idea yeah. when all these experts have sort of said that, nah, no faith yeah. in that i think that's a great question because i think that sometimes what
1: stops us is we need to feel like we've got everything ticked in terms of this is going to absolutely be successful. Well, I think mm. what what my brother and I, and I know that I had clarity on, was this is absolutely what I need to do as my next step. Yeah. And I have, I'm super confident it's going to be successful. But if it isn't, I still believe this is what actually needs to happen and I should do it. So I think that's where people can get stuck and, and, mm. and, and not trust themselves and listen to the people that are saying. And I think it is hard to listen to people that you think are actually smarter than you.
0: Yeah. Saying,
1: <laughs> no, it's not going to work. Yeah. But I just, I feel like we just have this obviously the self-belief and the trust in ourselves to go, no, I actually really 100% believe that this is going to work. And yeah. I think it's um, without being arrogant or with ego, you have to be confident enough to go, I just see something really clearly. I'm unsure why they don't see it. Yeah. um, But I'm going to trust that my vision is actually doable um, and that it's what I really need to do for myself and if it works fantastic and also take the risk if it doesn't work I still believe I'm doing the thing that needs to happen yeah so I think it's that's where people get a little bit stuck they want to feel like it's absolutely I need all these stars to align Mm. for me to take this leap whereas I think a lot of the time it's you need to take the leap because it's you believe in it enough to
0: not worry about what other people say and that day often doesn't come of all the stars being in no, alignment. It's, it's never going to happen. Yeah. There's always
1: people that are going to disagree, I guess, but it's, yeah. do you believe enough in yourself to go, I can actually make this work and I think it's what I should do.
0: Do you think it helped being in the duo with your brother? Because if absolutely either of yeah. you were having a day of going, yeah. oh, my God, what are we doing?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely that helped because we were both so clear and had such clarity that this is yeah. absolutely the right time. And absolutely the right brand, and we had franchising experience. So I think we were just like we have everything that we need. Yeah. We believe to make this a success. So I think it was really lucky that we both had that.
0: Yeah. I guess the same belief. I was impressed at that part of your story. I love my brother to bits, but I couldn't work (laughs) with him. (laughs) So I was so impressed when I've heard you in interviews talk about actually you've never really fallen out, and you guys were just so dedicated to this vision together
1: yeah and I think because we're so we're so different we're polar opposites and I think that's where it's always been really easy to work together because it's like well you're good at that so you do that I'm yeah I'll do this not like I want to do that no so it was it's just always been really simple
0: you've had your roles
1: absolutely yeah Yeah,
0: so I want to go into some of the how because you've got this great idea this great vision that you guys are committed to to the death and then you get the rights and then it's a case of right go on then and go. So how did you start executing that strategy? Because I'm really passionate about this. I think a lot of us have great ideas and a lot of us have great strategies, but how do you actually execute on that and put it into action? And that's where a lot of people struggle, um, including myself. That's the challenging part. So how did you guys actually go about it then? I think the, the great thing about the fitness
1: industry is it's so sales and marketing. Right. driven. Like it's just if you're not doing sales and marketing well in the fitness industry you're never going to survive. Mm. So I think from our our coming into the industry, it was the first thing we had to learn was how to sell. Yeah. You know, if you don't know how to sell a membership, your gym is going to fail. And so we really honed that skill in terms of the sales process and how do we need, you know, and just the activity that needs to go on to drive revenue and to drive business. Yeah. And so when we had the franchise, it was like, okay, well, we need to sell franchises. We're not selling gym memberships anymore. And so it was like, where are we getting our leads from? What marketing are we doing? How many, you know, I would just call people and keep calling them until they would say I've decided not to take on a franchise. Yeah. And so I think it was just that relentless pursuit of we just knew we needed to talk to X amount of people to sell X amount of franchises. And I think that's well sometimes people kind of think, well, I'll just build everything. Yeah. And then it will just kind of happen that people people don't just come along and buy things. You have to have a process and a sales focus. So I think for us, that was like initially we had to do that. We knew we had still compliance and finding properties Mm. and we knew all the complexities of franchising. So it was just the sales and marketing piece of it. We would go to every franchise expo, we would stand on the stands, we would talk to as many people as we could and that's how we got momentum. Yes. And then from there, it was really making sure the franchisees were successful so that in the sales process, I could say, you need to go and speak to... Steve Rollins, who was our first franchisee and see how he's going and then he was our biggest sales advocate because he was doing so well. So you used him as a reference. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Paul Steve in the early days used to speak to everybody like, oh, <laughs> oh there's another guy that's going to call you and he's like, it's fine. And so just really getting that momentum I think is so critical in any business. Yeah. Um, but with franchising it's so critical that you get that momentum and, and the movement of growth because people buy off the success of the franchise. So if things yes. are slow franchisees aren't doing well it's it's never going to scale
0: yeah so sales and
1: marketing was really you know our key focus in the first couple of years and in probably the first five years was really like making sure that was a well-oiled machine
0: yeah um, to push forward and what were some of the sales and marketing tactics you mentioned going to expos you mentioned getting on the phones yourself like what were some of the sales and marketing tactics that for you you felt were really really powerful and and helped um, get that momentum and that head of steam yeah so we did everything at the beginning like you do because you, you yeah. just have to try everything so we yeah. did all franchise
1: expo franchise magazines we spoke to just anybody that was interested yeah. um we did a number of clubs ourselves just to get the momentum okay. of, we operated some you know richard operated some so we just tried to open as many clubs as we physically could ourselves as well because we just knew that we needed to show the concept yes um so we did everything that I guess you do if you're trying to sell something. So we really invested heavy ourselves personally with time and energy and money into mm-hmm. getting clubs open. We then on sold those. So we just I guess we attacked it in as many ways as we could to get momentum. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we every lead that we ever got was called multiple times (laughs) and i think that's what people sometimes also don't have a strong enough sales process so that they're like well i rang them away they didn't write back to me it's like we would just read what they said i'm not interested anymore yeah um so i think that that relentless pursuit of that um and the passion to say to them this business can actually change your life um it's doing so well you need to have a look at
0: it being able to say that and not kind of
1: sit on the back floor to go oh, they mustn't be interested anymore yeah
0: um it's a real i think it's a different approach absolutely i mean i think it's statistically 80 percent of sales take five follow-ups or more and 44 percent of people give up one so that yeah. follow-up process um i talk about it quite a bit and i find people think it's quite basic that you're talking about follow-up but actually like you're saying it's yeah. actually a key part to the story because if you don't follow them up you wouldn't have seen them through to sort of success Yeah. yeah absolutely and is that something that for you stands out as the biggest contributor that you go you know what actually when x happened that was the biggest contributor to our growth that got us that momentum or do you think it was just this combination and this mass volume of all the different activities you were doing
1: yeah, I think, it was, I think it was the momentum of everything that we were doing and then I think it was we had a real focus. So there was a, a franchise that had started about 18 months before us in Queensland called Jets and they were always oh. like a little bit ahead of us in terms of yeah. club openings and it was just a huge focus from Justin and I to go, we have to be ahead of them. And so I think that was a momentum shift as well. So for us it was to be, okay, we, we, we need to, we want to be the beast in the country. And so that I think was a shift. And it still drives a brand to this day is to be the biggest and the most number because from a consumer's point of view, we know that accessibility is so important. Yeah. And so if you've got 500 locations to go to versus 100, we're obviously way more appealing for you to yeah. join. So wherever you go there's an anytime fitness literally in the country now. Yeah. And so that was a huge driving force. So I think that momentum initially, but then also getting to a point where we have the most locations and really being focused on that was, was a key component
0: yeah absolutely and what i love about that actually when you talk to it is how much even though jets were sort of trying to sort of play a a game of cat and mouse there with you you guys actually really did disrupt the industry because at the time no one was doing 24 7 access no one was doing all the different um, parts of your offering it was very unique so i'd love to understand a bit more around you know your take on disrupting the fitness industry and disrupting industries because it's something that a lot of people go oh i need to be disruptive but how do i even go about doing that? and what advice you would give people if they wanted to look at how you even start to think about being disruptive in your industry?
1: Yeah. I think for us it was obvious because we knew obviously the industry side and how to run fitness centres, but the consumer offering at the time, if you think back, it was 2007, it was really just really big gems. Fitness First was absolutely dominating the industry, but from a consumer's point of view, no one liked Fitness First. There was actually a website called Fitness First Sucks. Oh, wow. Their members had set up because they had become so big and so arrogant yeah. that they were like, you can't cancel your membership and the sales mm. process was really harsh. And, and we were like, yeah, well, people don't have a choice. And so it was obvious from us, if you look at it from a consumer's point of view, all the pain points that they had to access fitness centres was Fitness First was big and expensive and it was only 75 mm. So if you didn't live near one, it's like, well, where do I go now? And then, yeah. then you were stuck in this weird zone. where There's not really a good gym to go to the equipment hall. They're not updating it. And it's still expensive. And so for us, the offering to a consumer was, okay, we're going to be affordable, which nobody was at the time. We're going to be accessible 24-7 because people actually do want to come on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. and They don't want to be restricted. They don't want to come in at 6 a.m. They want to come in at 5.15 and so accessibility and affordability from a consumer's pain point was like if we are 49.95, which is where we launched into the country per month, it's a no-brainer for the yeah. consumer. So it was really looking at the pain points rather than looking at it from an industry perspective to go, I'm just looking at the metrics within the, within the P&L to how would you run that? Yeah. It was actually looking at it completely differently from the consumer side to go, what do they actually want? that's not being offered in the country and then it was so obvious to us that 24 7 affordable accessible gyms with really high-end equipment Mm. was absolutely what people would want and that's why I think the momentum was so easy because the consumer uptake when we opened gyms was so strong because it was like this is amazing it's only 49 bucks a month. I can come whenever I want you're going to have more clubs, and then I can start to use them that's incredible so it was just an offering that wasn't available which is why it was so disruptive but it was obvious to us that the consumer would want it, but no one was actually looking from that lens, if that makes
0: yeah, sense. Yeah, so it's more of people looking at it from an internal lens as to that consumer-centric. Absolutely, and consumer this is the way centric. the industry is. Yeah, this is always to do it always has been. And it always has been, and this yeah. is what
1: we do, and this is how we run, and this is the best thing for the fitness industry. But it's like, well, it's not the best thing for people trying to get healthy Yeah. to only be open certain hours and to be charging $80 a month when they only use the treadmill and the weights, mm-hmm. which is the other thing. is, It's stripped out a lot of things. And was a smaller offering. People were like, well, they're not going to want to come because it hasn't got the change rooms and the classes. And I'm like 70% of people don't do the classes or use the change room. Yeah. You know, so it was being able to really think about it completely differently in terms of what people were using and they wanted at a price that was like pretty much a no-brainer.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So just putting really your consumer lens on completely walking in the shoes of your customer, as they say. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested in terms of what I love about the examples you've already given is the strong execution focus. You know, the fact you guys were getting on the phone, you were going to the expos, you were following people up. There's some really, really, really strong execution. And I think for a lot of people, like we mentioned before, that's not necessarily the most natural. Do you have tips or tools or strategies or methodologies or things that you follow to sort of really help you to stay true to that strong execution? Yeah, I think the thing for us was always... There's so many
1: parts to franchising that you could, Mm. if you were trying to make everything perfect from day one, then you would probably never start. Um, So for us it was always like what are the key priorities at the moment that Mm. we need to focus on? We need to have all seven parts of the business working, obviously, to some level, but if we prioritise all of them, we're going to be way too slow to move forward. So it was really mm. always looking at what's the key priorities of franchise training, is it real estate, like where are our, where's our, I guess, um, where's the funnel being blocked in terms of us progressing at scale? And so and it did shift, priorities always moved. It was like, okay, well, we're having issues finding real estate to get clubs open quickly enough, okay, we'll, we'll have to look at having an internal property team. Yeah, okay, then it's back to okay, membership sales. Okay, what sales training are we doing for the franchisees? But I think it was always those clear priorities at any given time to know what was the key driver and not focus on everything.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah,
1: so I think that's that's where the execution focus was always. If we got too broad and were focusing on everything at the same time, we would notice that things would just be too slow. Yeah, getting behind on, on many things versus having you know, some really clear priorities as to what's our key driver in the next
0: three, six, 12 months. Yeah. And I love that because I love the four disciplines of execution methodology, where they talk about having two to three goals and that's the optimal number. And if you have more than that, your chance of achieving them dramatically drops and actually goes down to zero. So I love that focus. I'm interested in how you then applied that to the team because obviously you guys had an incredibly high-growth journey and I kind of want to understand a bit more about that. But also then you become a leader very quickly in the business and it's all well and good that you guys are really committed to your vision and you can see it so clearly, but how do you actually rally the troops, get the team behind your vision and execute it? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think what we tried to do,
1: and, you know, obviously you fail sometimes, cause especially when you grow and scale. You've got new stuff yeah. coming in. But I think what we always tried to do was make sure that the team was aware of what the actual key priorities were, even if their role was to support that. They always knew that, okay, club openings are our focus for the next six months, so we all need to be thinking mm-hmm. about that when we're doing our own job. And so, I think the role of the leader, and one thing that we learned, I guess, as we grew as leaders in that organisation, was that we needed clarity in terms mm. of what the priorities are because people in their roles think that their job is the most important and their job is the priority mm. when it actually sometimes isn't. And so, us having clarity to be able to say to the team, these are the three drivers, these are the two things that we need to stay focused on whilst doing our jobs well, yeah. all of us is these are the things that are actually going to move us forward and making sure that they had clarity around that because I think once they lose the clarity of what are we Mm. doing, (laughs) what are we trying to get to in three or six months... Um, then they lose focus and they, and they lose momentum in their role as well. So I think for yeah. us it was always just being clear as leaders what was yeah. the key driver.
0: And digging into sort of a bit of the nitty-gritty of that, like how did you do that in terms of is that weekly meetings? Is that, you know, all-hands type meetings? Like what does that look like to make sure everyone continues to stay? With priorities shifting so frequently, how, how do you actually do that? Yeah. I think it changed over time. So
1: my brother and I were obviously we, there was two of us, and then there was three of us, and then there was ten of us, and then there was then there was a GM and then there yes. was a CEO, and and so I think it was, um, you know, when we were in day to day ops, it was absolutely what are the weekly things that we need yeah. to look at, yeah. What are, and my brother and I were always like, what are the things that we're actually looking at on a daily basis, weekly basis, and how are we getting together with the team to go? These are the three things that we need to actually drill into, mm. and we're going to look at these other ten things. But that's just to see if that's everything's moving. So weekly, weekly with the team was when we were daily, day to day ops. By the end of it, I was monthly board meetings. Yeah, and strategy. So I think, but it's, I think the leader's role, so the CEO's role. Yeah. To make sure that the key team members, in my opinion, are at least weekly going over the fifteen or ten things that are like the top three. But then yeah. these are things we actually have to look at every single week to make sure that we're on top of what's actually going on. Yeah, um, and I haven't been in the business now for, for two years, but I'm assuming that's still
0: going on. Yeah. yeah, and in terms of you know, you therefore had to step up in that high growth leadership role, and you know, I'm sure as you mentioned, you mentioned before there was a few failings, and and you have to learn a lot. What do you think have been some of your key leadership lessons? Because I know leadership is a bit of a hot topic and a passion yeah. of yours. Yeah,
1: I think um, I think the role of values and vision as you. Come get further back from the day-to-day operations can't be devalued in terms of how you communicate as a leader what your vision for the business is and what the values are because once you grow a team underneath you, I think that if, if that's not spoken about, the values and the vision can very quite easily move towards a CEO's vision mm. versus if you're the founder or you're on the board. And, you, and, and so I think the clarity around that needs to get more crystal clear as you get further away from the business and needs to be communicated more clearly um, as you go along. I think it's easy when you're in day-to-day communications yeah. with your team. They can get a sense of where who you are and how you would like it to be, but the yep. further you get removed, it's harder for the people that come in, that started the business, haven't really met you, haven't worked with you to understand clearly what's the expectation. Mm. And so I think communication clarity is, is, is key as, yep. you, as your leadership grows and I think that's a skill that we learn, have to learn, when we're not in day-to-day communication with team
0: members. You've talked a couple of times actually about learning skills. So you just talked there about learning communication skills. You talked about learning sales yeah. and marketing skills. Yeah. Did you guys invest really heavily in training or, you know, how did you invest in your own personal and professional development? Yeah, yeah.
1: So um, all the way through the industry we've invested in people coming in to teach us and our team skills yep. that we don't have, whether it's whether it's how to be more effective with time or sales yep. skills was always, always been a huge part of what I've learned. And then I'm always learning as much as I can externally from personal yep. stuff. So I'm always listening to as many podcasts, reading as many books as I can because I, I want to keep learning. I think that hones your skill and I think you need to have that passion for learning as a leader because as your business grows and evolves, you need to grow and evolve to be able to lead it well Um, and also think just as humans we want to grow and evolve. Mm. So I'm always reading two or three books and I'm always listening to podcasts and I think that that's that that's just an essential
0: yeah. I'm going to circle back to that one. I'm going to, I need to find out. I'm, a bit, I'm terrible like this. I, I've got my pen writ here, taking notes and going, right, which books, which podcast? So I'm going to circle back yeah, to that yeah, one. Yeah. I want to talk about. Um, I read an article where you talked really openly, which I loved, about the not so sexy and glamorous side <laughs> of you know having a high growth business and actually taking a bit of a toll on you know yourself and and family and relationships and so on. And I really, really loved that because I think so much of the time it's seen as you know that entrepreneurship's become a buzzword. It's become yeah. something that you know people think it's really sexy and glamorous, and it's not. And I loved the honesty that you shared there. Yeah. I'd love to know a bit more about that how you dealt with it and what your go-to strategies are to make sure that you know you put your own oxygen mask on first and take care of yourself yeah and i think i agree with you i think that entrepreneurship has this um
1: it's an illusion of mm. how how it is to live this life of an entrepreneur and like you know a lot of it is just day-to-day grind and it's hard work and mm. it's long hours and it's the pressure that the employees don't have and that's mm. where i get really passionate about business owners looking after themselves because it's like they can leave whenever Mm. they like you can't just leave your business whenever you like you've got responsibilities and you've got commitments Mm. you've got all of these things that are on your shoulders so you need to look after yourself because you're responsible for that whole business and so for me there's been many times where I've gone way too far into the just working self-discipline just keep pushing yeah and gotten to a state of of burnout. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at recognizing that sooner and going, yeah, okay, right. So for me now I know under challenge or under duress or under a time when it's harder, my self care measures actually have to be more, Mm. which is the it's counterintuitive. so you think, well, I don't have time, so I can't exercise and yeah. I can't eat well and I can't, you know, I can't do all those things. Whereas I've learnt that I need to actually do the opposite. And yes. up the ante. Yeah. And up the ante, which is mean I need to do more yoga, I need to do more meditation, I need to and it's hard because you then have to really try and work out how the heck do I fit it in at a time yeah. under pressure. Um, but I've learned for myself that is the only way for me to yeah. avoid burnout.
0: And how do you balance that? So you've got three kids, you've got growing growing businesses, multiple businesses, um, you might be going through a challenging time, so you've got pressure on you there to be working. So you've got lots of pressure coming at you personally, professionally, in all directions. How do you then prioritise, you you know, you said you prioritise your self-care in those difficult times, but how do you also prioritise the thousand other things and the business demands that equally have to be done today, non-negotiable? Yeah, I think... We sometimes think that everything's urgent or everything's important, but yeah. if
1: you actually get some clarity and are able to sit, at it, sit down and look at, like I'll yeah. just do a lump and dump of everything that I think needs to happen. And when you look at it with clear eyes, which is why yoga and meditation for me is at, at like a, an essential of life because mm. I can't get clarity without having that space. I can then look at the list and go, you know what, there's only three things on there mm. that I actually need to do that will move everything else forward. The other
0: 17
1: seem important and they're usually important for someone else
0: yeah i love that
1: and so then i'm like i don't even need to do that like why is it even on my list Or so i just say no i can't do that until november or like i'm not doing it at all yeah because if it doesn't actually move you forward into the direction that you want the 20 things on the list usually it's three yeah uh, but the clarity piece is what makes you not get overwhelmed and think that you need to do the 20 things on the list because there's usually one or two that if you do those really well everything moves forward. Yeah. And so to focus on that and to focus on 20 things that you won't do well because you've got 20 things. So I think for me it's just looking at actually there's not 20 things. There never is. Mm. There's usually if I just do that and that is a really big, hard task, but if I just focused on that for the next week, everything else will move. And I think yeah. it's learning that and it's hard because it's self-discipline as well to go... I'm not getting overwhelmed by the things that are seemingly urgent and being able to say to people, I can't do that right now and I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. Having those conversations, they need to occur because otherwise you're the one that loses out.
0: Yeah. And a
1: lot of the things on the list I know are for other people. Mm. And And it's not being selfish. It's just like actually for me to get from here to there, which is better for everybody, it's better for me, it's better for my family, it's better for the business, is to just focus on those things.
0: I love um, the one thing, and yeah, um, the one thing interview. Read that book, yes, yeah, so oh, and the podcast. So good. Oh, that's so good. And I love that what you were just talking to actually around what's the one thing I can do that makes everything else easier or right. irrelevant. And like you said, it's often not twenty things. If I just focus on this one thing for the week, as you said, it actually has that sort of domino effect Absolutely. to everything else. Yeah you mentioned their self-discipline and I yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, and I'm really curious about this because I'm obsessed with how people play high performance game, like yeah. whatever high performance game is to you. Yeah. And that's interesting. You mentioned self self-discipline and what do you do to build that habit, yeah. but also on the days when you go, you know what? I don't want to get out of bed. I want to play snooze on the alarm, and yeah. PS, I want pancakes yeah. for breakfast, yeah. and then I'm gonna have a Mars bar. Like, you know, yeah. how do you build that self-discipline habit and get past when you're feeling the stuck or unmotivated yeah. aspect? Which I assume you feel at times. Absolutely. There's certain days where I get up really early, which is one of my self-disciplines
1: because I know that, and I've learned by trial and error that if I don't get up early and I decide that I need an extra half an hour sleep or whatever it is that I'm deciding to do, I just mess up my whole day.
0: Yeah, interesting. Because I
1: don't have any time to actually go, okay, let me start my day properly with proper intention and then I'm just rushing the day and I get to the end of the day and I'm like, I don't even know what I did. Yeah. And so I've learned by trial and error that that doesn't work. So the discipline to go, you actually just need to get your ass out of bed (laughs) at that time means that everything else is better. Yeah. so... But that's trial and error
0: to mm. know that
1: actually the half an hour is not going to make any difference to you right now. Yeah. But getting up early will absolutely make the difference to you. So I, I'm disciplined anyway, as mm. like as a human um, in terms of exercise and nutrition. That kind of stuff has just been I've just been always like that. So that part to me is like not hard. Mm. The getting up early and writing down goals and that stuff it still takes self discipline because it's not my natural go to. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if that answered the question. but Yeah, it yeah. does. So it's like, of course, there's always times that are hard, yeah. but I think by learning that what you think is the easiest route or like I can't be bothered and I know that action creates motivation. It's not motivation. Like I'm, you don't expect mm. to wake up and be super motivated. It's like some days you're not going to feel super motivated to get out of it yeah. really early and go and exercise. But the action is you actually just need to do it because yeah. then you will feel motivated.
0: What times so early. Nice. Because you emailed at me at 5 a.m. this morning. So I'm yeah. like, okay, what time were you up? If I get up
1: at 4.15, 4.30.
0: Wow. Yeah, but I go to bed early. Do you consider, were you always like a natural morning person? Yeah, a natural morning to me used to be like 6. Okay. It was like
1: when I would kind of get up and then yeah. I went to 5.
0: Yeah. And then
1: now I'm like 4.30 is great because everyone's, the whole world's asleep. Yeah. So for me with kids, and this is one of the kids things, they get up, they're not allowed to get up until 6.00 my kids wake like really early. Yeah. So they can't come out of the room until 6 or old enough to know they've got an no alarm clock. And it's and so I get from 4.30 to 6 o'clock and no one's talking to me. Nice. It's the only time in the day. Yeah. No one talks to me and I can do what I need to do to get myself in it, to have an amazing day. Whereas if I sleep until six, it's just like a whirlwind. Yeah. The kids are there and then it's time to get to school and, like, there's no time for me and everything then is rushed. So at mm. least if I get my time in the morning. There's a book called The 5am Club, which is really cool to read. And there's a lot of statistics around people that rise early. Yeah. Um, But for me, it's just that's the only time I know that it's in it's uninterrupted i can read i can listen to something i can do what i need to do for myself without anything taking up that time
0: i was going to ask what your sort of you mentioned there around setting your intention for the day and your yeah. inter- writing goals and, and reads. so i was going to ask you around you know you've got an, your beautiful hour and a half what yeah. you do because i know there's yeah. a lot of i've seen a lot of the research around those pe- people who get up early the rituals that they have yeah. um the miracle morning swears by savers so yeah. there's silence affirmations visualizations exercise Reading and scribing. Yep. So I'm really curious what your yeah my morning is. your morning is. So my morning is I will start with a meditation, whether it's a short guided one or
1: whether yep. I do a 20 minute um, non-guided.
0: I'll then read or listen to
1: something. Yep. Um, I have a black coffee, and then I will journal
0: something, yeah.
1: whatever is going on. Um, and that's kind of there my that's my morning ritual. So that if I do those three things, so if I read, journal, and meditate. Then I know that I'm pretty set, and then I'll look at what is coming up for the day. What's like what's mm. happening? So I knew I me you this morning, um, but it's it's then going. Uh, how do I? How, how am I going to show up today? What's going to be important for me? Yeah. And looking at usually two or three words that I think about in terms of how I want to be in that day, mm. um, and that's kind of my morning setup. And then the day kind of if I do that well, the day generally. there's always a curse especially with kids Um, (laughs) something will happen but they usually it flows pretty well if I've done that well and pretty intentional with
0: how I want to be that day yeah I love that yeah I was thinking it this morning because as soon as I saw your email earlier I was like I've got to ask her this question (laughs) (laughs) so I want to change tracks and sort of close the anytime chip fitness chapter before moving on to humankind which I'm dying to ask you about um do you mind me asking around you know how you made the decision to leave anytime fitness because I'm assuming that you know that that would have been your baby Mm -hmm. and you know one of your four now babies um and you know how how you made that decision to exit yeah I think it had been a few
1: years that I'd been really in board and strategy where I was only in the office really one day a month um, obviously, there was communications in and around other than that, but I was actually in the office for the whole day, five one mm. one one, day a month. And I think whilst I really loved that and I really like board and I really loved talking strategy, I just felt like um, I'd done my best that I could do and I felt like the brand had a vision for where it wanted to go, which was obviously a board vision. You were no longer one, it was no longer my brother and I. It was, it was very much more like there was, you know, we had we had put a board together and, and looking at where the vision for the brand was and I just felt like for myself personally in terms of what I wanted to do, I felt like I'd done my best yep. work and um, I kind of wanted to do things that were outside of that and for me it's always like I'm a 1,000% in mm. or I'm not. Um, and so the decision was actually quite simple for me to go, okay, I see where the brand's going and... Absolutely, have that blessing for the brand to go that way. But I just feel like I want to go do something different, and um, that's just my natural in or out. And so it was like it's time yeah. for me to go. So yeah, it was a pretty, uh, it was a big decision, but it seems quite simple to make. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can't be
1: sort of half half I in. Want to be half in. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so, if I mean I'm right in, if
1: I'm not in, I don't like it. Was there was a lot of talk around maintaining shares and doing this, and I'm mm-hmm. like, I just, I either want to control something and yeah. have it. Or I don't want to control it and I don't want to have it even though I believe in the 100%. Was yeah. Just, yeah. That's just my
0: personality, I think. And so tell us about the Humankind project because you've moved from obviously the commercial world into the not-for-profit world. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit more about the the project and, you know, how it came to life and so on.
1: Yeah. So in 2014 I went on uh, an immersion trip with Business Chiefs, actually and to see the work of the Hunger Project. and. Um, I'd always wanted to do that and I think it was just at a time in my life where I was like this is actually really my next Mm. step in terms of leadership and learning um, a lot more about myself and what's going on in the world. So that was in 2014 um, that I went to Malawi and I think that was it was just it's a totally transformational trip I think for anybody that goes Mm. but for me it was just more of an eye-opening in terms of what can I actually achieve if I was to put my mind to this and not just see it as, you know, in a trip where I've made a donation. And um, I made a relatively big commitment to myself on that trip that I would do, this, this would be something that was part of my life um, and something that I would teach my children. So we started the foundation 12 months later in 2015 uh, with the vision to... Uh, I guess just speak about how businesses mm. can make a social impact, and also just for our, for me to be involved in with other entrepreneurs that had a similar like minded view around. Okay, what can we do um, with our own human potential if we were really to look at this? Mm. How can we make a change? So that's how the foundation came about. So we've got a number of different businesses and brands and entrepreneurs that are connected, um, and we'll go back to. We've been I've been back to Malawi twice since then. We're going again. Uh, this year to see a community that we funded into self-reliance. Wow. Yeah, it so was
0: 37,000,
1: over 37,000. I just giving goosebumps. Yeah, <laughs> in this community. So as a group, we get, as eight of us, we get to go back and meet the people that we met
0: yeah. three years ago
1: that we've helped fund into them now being able to have their community completely self-sufficient from any additional help from the hunger projects. And so now they're flying. So we get to wow. celebrate with them. And so that'll be a really special trip. Um, that we get to go and see them again and go back to where, you know, obviously we've all been working hard and and raising funds
0: to do that. So that will be a really beautiful time that's amazing yeah you mentioned there around you know businesses and how do they make a social impact and i actually want to tap into that because it's an interesting one i've debated recently with some of the mentors that i have around me going okay i want to make sure we're you know making a positive contribution and and, you know we're not a social enterprise but how do we have an impact and what do we do and you know you come up with all these ideas and you go down rabbit holes and not only that i feel there's a lot of um misinformation this is just my personal opinion um because even um thank you and who gives a crap and business social enterprises like that have had some bad press where people question their motivations which I find really difficult and so I think for a business when you're going how do I do something positive how do I make an impact you're overwhelmed by choice you're overwhelmed by misinformation and it's almost where do you start so what's your take on that for businesses around you know how you navigate that
1: yeah, and I completely agree with everything that you said. And there are a lot of um, foundations and charities that just don't have the impact that they should have because of either mismanagement or they're just trying to do their best, but they don't—they're not that mm. commercial in the outcome. And I think for me, it was a simple decision to look into the Hunger Project one side being on the trip to go, okay, let me see your financials, let me see your what are your values, how do you work, what is your sustainable model. Mm-hmm. And so like as a, just a commercial business transaction to look at it from the outside to go, does it make sense if I was to invest into this that it's that it's doing what I want to do in the world or not? And when you dig into a lot of organisations, you're not going to put your money there. Mm. And that, but You're right, it takes a lot of time <laughs> and a lot of rabbit holes to go down. And so for me, that's just my focus is the Hunger Project. I've seen the work, I understand it. I know that 82 cents in the dollar gets on the ground, which is incredible. And I know that it's completely sustainable what they're doing and it can go on and it's changing generations. So that's where I, for me, I don't look at any, I don't, I'm don't, i not looking at other organisations mm-hmm. because I don't want to go down 20 million rabbit holes when I've found something that I know that I can contribute to that is impactful and I'm passionate about, which is really important.
0: Yeah. And
1: so I think for business owners, um, finding something you're passionate about is one thing, but then making sure that where are their financials? Where is the organization's financial? Show me where your money goes. Show me how you work. And then if that all is aligned, then I would just stay with one organisation mm. um, and go deep with that relationship. And I think that's what I've done with the Hunger Project is like that is what I know inside and out. Mm. Um, and if you don't have the time to invest in going on the ground, at least, and that's humankind, I guess, exists for people that are connected to me that trust me, where I go, I've been on the ground. I've done the work. Here's the financials if you want to look at it. And this is how you can contribute. So it's
0: kind of an easier road in. So how can people contribute? So if people want to get involved in the Humankind Project, what are those avenues? Yeah, so we are
1: funding a number of projects at the moment that run our website.
0: Yep. And so if they speak
1: to people, they can reach out and say, how can I be engaged? And we usually take on only businesses that are interested in doing something larger than you know not $50 because they're like just talk to the human you know the hunger project you can speak to about anything as well I'm always like you don't need to go through to me I'm a huge advocate of speaking directly to the hunger project about anything that they want to do um and so we kind of have projects that you can donate to if it's more a one-off if you're wanting to engage your business more internally then we have a conversation about what is your vision for how you would do that how large are you sort of thinking and if it's if it's if it's large enough for humankind to feel like we can contribute our resources and our time, then we'll get engaged. And if it's not, we kind of go just talk directly to the team at DHP. Yeah. So it's kind of just it's an open conversation to go. How can I be of an assistance? And if I can't be of assistance, this is what I would do.
0: Yeah. And is the humankind now? Because you've got humankind, but you've also still got will, which we haven't even talked about. I started Will in
1: 2016, the end of 2016, um, because of my passion for yoga and because of, I think, as an industry, there is a space for simple modern yoga where people can feel like they can come and not feel judged. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of um, the people I speak to, they're like, I really should do yoga, but I just can't find somewhere I'm comfortable.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So it
1: was born out of that. In terms of a business model, probably a bit too early and probably uh to resource heavy in, in the way that i did it um so that was that's been a business journey and now we have our classes just online um, so they're still available for people to download and do at home but we don't have any studios at
0: yeah i quite like that because i find now having a kid you know getting that's to the reasons, somewhere is quite that's difficult one of the reasons that yeah.
1: online um, yoga is has been so successful yeah uh, as i guess as an industry but also ours because it's so simple and its you don't have to learn Sanskrit or the the language that they use and and we are more functional in the way that we describe the poses and the postures. So we've kind of taken the ancient practice and added a little bit of a modern twist so people can actually fit it into their day. Some of the classes are 22 minutes um, and understand what's going on in their body as they're doing it. So that's why and, and I love that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's becoming more accessible to, you know, people We work all different hours, not not Absolutely. everyone works 9 to 5, so yeah. it's making it more accessible. And if you need to
1: do it at 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> um,
0: for 22 minutes, you yeah. can. Like, yeah. It's kind of like I can't get to a
1: class, which is an issue. With yeah. Because you know, it's quite restrictive, if, especially if you're busy. You yeah, know, I agree. Everything in. It's like I've got to drive there and then I've got to park. And yeah you know, it's an hour and a half exercise of your day. Whereas if, and if you're traveling, it's then I've found traveling with trying to find a good yoga place is just, takes up too much time.
0: Yeah. And so for me,
1: it's just like roll out the mat, get my practice done. I know that I need it and then it's always there. It's a good staple.
0: Yeah. I love that. So I want to change track before um, we sort of come to, I've got a couple of quick fire questions, but before we come to that, I want to change track with setbacks. Um, I can't let you go without talking to you about (laughs) setbacks. Um, you know, you would have had setbacks along the way, and I'd love to understand how do you deal with that because you know it's like that classic diagram that everyone thinks starting a business is going to be that upwards <laughs> chart, um, and actually it's a load of twists and turns and backwards yeah. and then ten steps backwards and then five steps forward. So how do you personally cope and deal with some of the setbacks on the way?
1: Yeah,
0: I think um, recognizing when something
1: comes up as a challenge is it. A lot of times we see it as a challenge, but is it really a a huge commercial risk? Like, is it a big deal? Yeah. Or is it just something that you're like, well, okay, we need to just change tact? And I think that there hasn't been many times, and we've been lucky with any time to have big catastrophic things happen, but we've had to overcome Mm -hmm. them. Um, More in my personal life, it probably feels more like you've overcome huge challenges. But in terms of any time, it was always like, okay, that didn't quite go the way we thought. What did we learn? How do we need to reiterate it? And usually it came down to franchise communication. If we're rolling out something, okay, well, that just didn't land. Yeah. What did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? Is it a real issue? Do we want to try again or is that just something that we learned and that was just a bad decision? Mm. And so I think it's looking at it firstly to go, is it actually a large commercial issue
0: that mm. we need
1: to overcome or is it something that we have to just learn from and accept and, 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 and rework how we're going to do it? personally challenges for me have been more like where have i led myself down the wrong path acknowledge i've gone down the wrong path (laughs) Mm. and in business we do it the same We're like we we thought that was the right thing and then we get there and we're like that was the worst decision ever and for me it's always looking back to go okay where did that decision come from Mm. why did we make that decision and how can we not do that again It's, it's usually not the outcome that that i try and reflect on it's like what was the decision to do that and why did we do that and that usually stems the issue
0: yeah so more the learning yeah. from it more the learning yeah.
1: from it absolutely because you're always going to have setbacks and challenges yeah. like it's just it's it's inevitable and businesses will be disrupted mm. and so you're going to have to learn to go okay well that is a challenge how do we need to think about it differently and always trying to look at it from a different lens which i think mm. is hard when you're in the day to day because you yeah. just see you just see it the same way whereas Can't see the, from from the trees. outside is like have you thought about this Mm. And you're like, yeah, well, I hadn't even thought about approaching it like that. So I think it's always trying to remove yourself from the situation, observe it and look at it from the outside and then go, okay, and try and see where it went wrong.
0: And I think by the sounds of it, your practices that you've put in place, whether that's the the meditation, it's the yoga, it's the journaling would actually help you gain that clarity and that perspective and get that bit of sort of and I think that's why I get so passionate when I talk about mindset
1: and setting up our day is because without that perspective and being able to step out and step back you can't see clearly what's going on you can't see your actions clearly or what someone potentially is doing clearly until you remove yourself from the situation so I think that is a skill that I've been working on and still have not honed it But working on really for 10 years to be able to go, how can I observe this from the outside versus just be reacting from what's happening internally? And I think that as leaders, the best leaders in the world do that. Mm. They're able to observe it, to go, okay, well, I see things differently. That might be what's happening, but it's actually stemming from over here. And obviously that's critical.
0: So you just said the best leaders in the world do that. So I've got to circle back before I leave <laughs> you around your favourite podcasts and books. Which ones have had the biggest impact to, on you in terms of... So books? at the moment, I just finished Still This Is The Key by Ryan Holiday, which Ooh. is a
1: phenomenal book. Um uh, that one I just finished. Uh, another book that I've just finished is Pause. It was written by Rachel. I think it's Omiri or something. She was she works at Google. She's around mindfulness. Um, so I've just finished those two. In terms of podcast, um, Tom Bilu podcast yeah. is friggin' awesome. He's yeah. just a freak. I love his stuff just because it's all about hacks. But some of his mindset stuff that he had, the people he has on, is like amazing. Um, Brendan Bouchard, if ever you need motivation, he's like, I love him. I just think that he is uh, he's incredible. And
0: his high performance habits book is yeah, amazing. Amazing. So those are
1: kind of so I go between I go between self help and leadership. So yeah. if, if if I'm reading something, it's usually around, you know, the one thing or company of one, like lots of yeah. you know, that or it's around mindfulness and, 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 and I guess personal development is where I tend to go to. But those will be my favorite. Um, podcast at
0: the moment. I am going to get ordering some of those books. <laughs> this is lethal. So, if you could leave everyone with one recommendation if someone's trying to now scale their business, they're trying to grow it, um, and you just had one piece of advice for people, and you wish that this piece of advice was given more often, what would it be? I don't
1: know if it's one thing, I can do two things. Okay, you
0: can have two. <laughs>
1: First of all, clarity of why they want to scale. Mm. I think that the entrepreneur uh, hype makes people think that they should scale when sometimes mm. the scale just means less profit and more stress. Um, so the first thing I always say to people because people ask me about scaling all the time is why do you want to do that? Because sometimes it's just, well, I should because that's the next step and you're like, yeah. well, actually, maybe you don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's the first thing is clarity around their why they want to do that and make sure that that's actually right and then have they got, uh, are they in a position themselves to be able to lead that? And if they're not, who do they need to bring into the organisation or into the brand at that point in time to actually help? If they don't have the skills to do what they're planning to do, it's like, who's your next hire?
0: I am so pleased I asked that question. That is amazing. (laughs) That really, really resonated. Look, thank you so much. You've been so kind and generous with your time and your open and honest answers. So thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode with Jacinta, please come and see her at our execution summit on the 27th of February in Sydney. You can find all the details on theexecutionzone.com and reserve your seat there. Not only do we have Jacinta joining us, but we also have Julie Masters, the CEO of Influence Nation, who will be sharing with us the Influencer Code Workshop. We will also have other workshop activities which are hands-on and practical so that you can work on your business in the room. And rather than leave inspired, Leave having taken your first steps towards action. Before you leave us, don't forget to check out the Execution Zone Summit on the 27th of February in Sydney. We're going to have the incredible Jacinta McDonald, co founder of Anytime Fitness, talking to us about how they disrupted the fitness industry, how they took it from zero to over 500 clubs her tips for success, and all the behind the scenes of her story. We're then going to have the amazing Julie Masters, CEO of Influence Nation, take us through her Influencer Code Workshop. This is about how do you become influential in your industry? in a digital age, and what do you need to do to stand out from the crowd in such a noisy space? This workshop is just gonna be absolutely brilliant. Julie just is an incredibly inspiring lady who walks her talk and has years of experience that she brings to the table on this topic. Beyond that, we're then gonna be doing activities to start putting your learning into action. We don't want you walking away feeling inspired, we want you walking away having taken the first steps to execution. Get your tickets now on www.theexecutionzone.com.